Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 24th episode of Late Night Crimecast. I'm your host, Robin Steffens, and every week on Thursday, I'm going to post a new true crime story. I will cover cases that are local, cases that got a lot of media attention, and everything in between. Today, I want to apologize for last week's audio. It was pretty bad, but I mean, hopefully the story made up for it. And before we get started, I would like to ask you, my late night listener, to leave a rating and review on this podcast. They are always helpful a lot more than you think. And also, if you go to my Anchor page and click the website link, you can actually submit a case you would like me to cover. I'll be checking that out from time to time and picking cases to do from there. So if I use your case, I will definitely shout you out. Now let's get into today's case. I have been doing a lot of murder cases, I realize, and I want to get back into doing some missing persons cases. And so, yeah, today is going to be a missing persons case. It's going to be a little bit bizarre and quite chilling. It's definitely one of the more gruesome missing persons cases I've discussed. So, yeah, let's just jump right in. Today, we are going to be talking about the disappearance of Diane Louise Augett. Diane Louise Augett was born February 21st, 1958. There was nothing really notable about her upbringing and, you know, into her 20s, she led a life path pretty similar to a woman her age back in the 70s and 80s. She got married, she started having kids pretty young, and, you know, her husband, his name was Frederick, they had one son and two daughters. She took care of them mainly and was a stay-at-home mom. Some of her interests included camping, fishing, boating, music, and she was even pretty good at creating art. So, you know, her life, it was pretty average for the majority of her 20s and her 30s. You know, she did pretty wholesome things and her life was pretty normal until the stay-at-home mom was diagnosed with severe bipolar disorder around 30 years old. And, you know, this was in the 80s. I feel like during that time, mental health wasn't all that talked about, not like it is today at least, and it probably wasn't well understood. I feel like as the years progress, of course, things on mental health, we start getting more knowledge about it. But even now, I feel like mental health really isn't understood completely by everyone. So I can only imagine how it was back then. And she had a pretty severe case of bipolar disorder, so I don't know how that must have been like for her to be diagnosed with something so serious so late in her life. And 30 is not old by any means, but just think about it. She could have gone this long experiencing manic episodes and essentially these huge mood swings without understanding why. That had to have a great impact on her. To say that this turned her life upside down would be an understatement though. Uh, so she was given me- medication, of course, to help with her disorder, but her mother, Mildred, she stated that Diane was constantly on and off her medication, that she wasn't really taking it, and that it was difficult to be around her when she wasn't taking it. 
And so, you know, this became a habit of hers, you know, not taking her medication like she was supposed to, not keeping up with it. And this bad habit caused her to often go off the rails, which led to a turbulent few years. Her behavior led to her being arrested numerous times, losing custody of her three kids in 1988, and officially getting divorced from her husband in 1991. So on top of her, you know, going through this huge life-changing thing, being diagnosed with severe bipolar disorder, she, you know, her behavior started to change after she stopped taking her medication. And then she starts losing pretty much everyone in her life, her children, her husband. So she goes from being a normal stay-at-home mom to literally having nothing. And so all of this happening caused her to spiral into drug and alcohol abuse. She became an addict, you know, as many people who experience such loss in a short period of time do. And she ended up being institutionalized around 32 times by April of 1998. Her most recent stay being just a few weeks prior to her disappearance. This was the majority of what her 30s was. It was very rough for her, you know, turbulent. And she really didn't start to get it together until she finally moved in with her sister, Deborah Cronin, at her home in the town of Hudson, Florida. And I say get it together rather lightly. I feel like she wasn't completely together. I feel like, you know, anyone who knows about addiction knows that, you know, it's a hard thing to break. So I'm just going to say that she was trying, basically. So her sister, Deborah, she lived about 20 miles northwest of Diane's own home in Odessa. But even with that small of a move to her sister's house, her life had returned to some type of normalcy, I'm sure for her. You know, it was probably great to have the support of her sister while she tried to turn her life around. But that normalcy was short-lived. On April 10th, 1998, around 11 a.m., Deborah headed out of the house for a doctor's appointment. That was the last time she saw Diane. Diane didn't tell her what she was going to be doing that day. She didn't say anything specific. She didn't mention anything to Deborah. But Diane was seen later that day at the Hayloft pub on Little Road, approximately three miles from Deborah's home. And it seemed like things were, in fact, not going well for Diane, as and she was slipping back into her old ways. She was at the bar and only left when the bartender cut her off because she was acting drunk, and walking in circles. At around 4 p.m. on the 11th, a motorist saw Diane walking toward uh, north on US-19 near New York Avenue. And I can imagine she was probably pretty drunk at this point. I mean, the bartender said she was acting drunk and walking in circles. And so I'm thinking she wasn't in the clearest headspace. Um, maybe that can explain why she didn't go home to her sister I'm thinking it probably also had a lot to do with, you know, the shame because she had just been institutionalized. She had gone out. She'd gone to live with her sister, seemed to be getting a little bit better. And then she was kind of back to her old ways. I mean, I can't imagine her wanting to come home drunk to her sister when she had just recently got out of an institution. She probably feared she'd be thrown back in. So sometime between April 11th and the 14th, Diane was seen at a motel called Coral Sands Motel on US-19 and Maryland Avenue. There are little details about this sighting, and I really wish there was an exact date and time, 
but regardless, it would prove to be one of the most important sightings of Diane based on later events. On April 14th, a waitress saw Diane eating lunch at a place called the Inn on the Golf Hotel. So that was likely the last time anyone saw her. There are no reports of anyone else being with her, so I'm guessing she was alone, and it seemed likely that this had changed because later on that day, her mother, Mildred, came home to a horrific message on her voicemail. It was a voicemail of Diane screaming, Help! Help! Let me out! Then, in the background, it seemed as if there was a scuffle, like someone was trying to grab a phone away from her, and then the last thing the mother heard before the call ended was another voice saying, hey, give me that. Unsure if that was uh, Diane's voice or someone else's voice, you know, but regardless, her mother is deeply disturbed by this voicemail. She tries calling the number back, but no one answers. And, you know, while her daughter is an addict and quite troubled, she would never fake something like this. So her mother calls 911 to get the authorities involved. Because of the voicemail, they immediately start looking into this as a missing person's kidnapping case, basically. They try to trace the phone call, but they're unable to. The caller ID, it says something like Starlight, but a search leads them to a dead end. So this is the really weird. Um, so they try to trace where this, you know, caller ID could have come from. And they go search for it, and there's at least six businesses with the name Starlight within a 45-mile radius of the city, but apparently none are in Odessa itself. And so if that's the last place she was seen, but, you know, the numbers to these other businesses aren't matching up, then, you know, that doesn't make sense. So, yeah, I'm just going to tell you guys right now that this Starlight caller ID, it was never solved. Like, it was never figured out where it came from. Um, you know, that would be their only lead for a while, too, until a fairly gruesome one popped up around 4 p.m. on April 15th. So first, there's this voicemail. You get this voicemail, you can tell that Diane, whatever happened to her, she's in trouble. She's screaming for help. And, you know, it seems as if she's been kidnapped. Then on April 15th, a woman is walking to work when she comes across a severed human fingertip lying on the ground along US-19. And, you know, the woman, she just assumes it's fake and she just goes along with her normal workday. You know, nothing's said and nothing's done during her workday. And, I mean, I don't really blame her because who would ever think that they would actually come across something like that on a public road? I would not blame her for just leaving it alone. But luckily, something about that stayed within her mind because she actually mentioned the discovery to her boyfriend later that night. Thankfully, that same boyfriend went out to search the next day and found the finger. After discovering that it was, in fact, a real finger, he took it to the authorities. Its print would later be matched to Diane's right middle finger. This discovery would immediately launch another search, but this time, instead of looking for Diane as a whole, they scoured the area looking for body parts. You know, anything to help further the investigation, you know, positive or negative, but unfortunately, nothing else was left behind, just that finger. And to make things even stranger, sometime between April 10th and 18th, 
Someone broke into Diane's house on Chesapeake Bay Drive. There's no exact date of the burglary, and it's not known to the public what was actually stolen from the home. Um, and I mean, this break-in, it could have been random, honestly, but I find the timing of it to be too much of a coincidence. Like, there's no way that just around this time that she goes missing that her house is also broken into. But unfortunately, you know, nothing really went anywhere with this discovery, and detectives suggested that the break-in may have just been a result of teens who hung out with Diane and had been given permission to party in her home. So they just left it at that pretty much. And yeah, I mean, she goes missing, her house gets broken into, no connections made, which kind of sucks, but I don't want to complain about law enforcement right now. <laughs> so let's just move on. Now, if you think this story could not get any more bizarre, it really does. On April 18th, the manager of a convenience store called Totally Convenience, um, where Diane's sister, Deborah, worked, they discovered a plastic bag of neatly folded clothing hidden inside the outdoor freezer. And so this freezer is behind this store. The manager had become suspicious after seeing the bag. She got it and then, you know, she see what was inside and she showed the clothes to Deborah and she immediately recognized the clothes as some she had recently given her sister. Does that not give you like the chills? Like the set of circumstances really makes me think that the person who took Diane knew a lot about her and her family to purposely leave her clothing folded at the same place her sister worked, knowing that her sister could find it. And, you know, this is in such a, pla a place that's so close to where Diane is being searched for. It's like, it's like the person who took her was right under the authorities' noses and knew it and just kind of wanted to rub it in. I mean, the convenience store was located just a mile north of Diane's home in Odessa. And this would not be the last time this would happen, though this would be the only lead they would have for the next two and a half years. On November 24, 2000, two and a half years after Diane's disappearance, the Tampa Bay Times published a front page article about her case. And clearly, this caught the attention of whoever had taken Diane or whoever was involved. Or maybe this was another coincidence? Because the very next day, Diane's brother's girlfriend, a woman named Terry Wilson, walked into the Circle K on US-19 and discovered a plastic Ziploc with the name Diane written in black Sharpie sitting on the lottery counter. Inside the bag was a tube of lipstick, a bottle of taboo perfume, and a container of generic toothpaste. This toothpaste was actually really important because it had been issued by the same mental facility Diane was released from just weeks before her disappearance. So this is all adding up a little bit too strangely, you know, it's not sitting well with me. Terry Wilson, she took the bag to Mildred, you know, Diane's mother, and 
her mother identified the items as being hers. You know, it could not really be determined if any of these items had really belonged to her, but her mother said they were hers, and this was seen as a possible new lead. So, yeah, this is all too much for me, guys. Like, how would the perpetrator or perpetrators know that someone like Terry Wilson, a person with a direct connection to Diane, I don't care how distant, like, how would they know that she would walk into that store, find that bag? It's just too many coincidences for me. This is an area that, you know, Diane used to frequent, so I get that. Three months before she disappeared, she had been picked up by police in a neighborhood right by this Circle K. Um, but still, like, the perpetrator seemed to be next level or all-knowing or something. First with the sister and now with the brother's girlfriend. Like, there's too many dots to connect, but it, it doesn't appear that anyone in her family was ever assumed to be a person of interest. So let's move on from that for now. It was actually on June 2001 that Deborah received a call from detectives who wanted to let her know that a suspect in Diane's case had been arrested for another murder. Let's talk about that murder real quick since it relates to this case. So not too long after that bag of items belonging to Diane was found, police received another tip from a witness saying that they had seen Diane at the Coral Sands Motel on US 19 and Maryland Avenue on the day that the mother had received that voicemail. Authorities quickly jumped on this because, I mean, a murder had taken place there recently. So yeah, this is the murder that we're gonna start talking about. This is like kind of like a mini case inside this case. So at 4 a.m. on June 27, 2001, two masked gunmen broke into the Coral Sands Motel. This is the same motel that Diane was last known to stay in. So there's the first connection. That motel at the time was managed by a 52-year-old man named Gary Robert Evers and his girlfriend, Rose Casper. The gunmen had come to the motel and beat and pistol-whipped Rose in an attempt to rob the place, basically. But the men fled when Evers burst into the room with his own gun. The next day, Evers, you know, he was upset. He's looking for who tried to rob him. So he invited a man that he thought was involved with the robbery. That man was 26-year-old Todd Cammers. Evers knew him and knew that he had a history of robbing people, a history of burglary. Evers believed that, you know, both of the gunmen wore masks because they knew that he would be able to recognize them. And so he thought that would be a reason that Cameras could have been one of those guys. So, you know, Evers confronts Cameras and he's, you know, trying to get him to confess, but Cameras repeatedly denies being involved. And, you know, he keeps on denying, denying, denying. But despite his denials, Evers decides to take matters into his own hands. He pulls out his gun and unloads two clips into Cameras' face and upper body. And a witness who sees the murder immediately runs and calls police. It would later be found out that Cameras was actually innocent and two other men would be implicated in the armed robbery a few months after his murder. So yeah, that's that with that murder. A side case for you guys. Now back into Diane's disappearance. So the witness calls the police on Evers and Evers is arrested. 
And after being arrested, you know, this kind of gave detectives more time to look into him because he had actually been a suspect in Diane's case for a long time, although it's kind of unknown how they came to suspect him in the first place. Now, I will say one of the last places Diane was seen alive was the Coral Sands Motel. So it makes sense that they would think that, you know, the person involved with her disappearance um, would be connected to that place. And then also there's the fact that her fingertip was found just a block north of the motel. And so, you know, all of these things and small pieces of evidence, they kind of surround this motel this man owned. Um, but, you know, Evers did not actually have a criminal record in Florida prior to murdering Cammers. And also, they were never able to solidly connect Evers to the murder. He was never charged in relation to Diane's disappearance. And in 2004, he was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without parole, where he died in prison eight years later. Since 2001, there have been no major developments in Diane's case. To this day, she remains a missing person. thoughts on the case it's so difficult to say who could have been involved but there is one thing I do not like about cases like this and that is coincidences I don't like that whoever took her knew where her sister worked um likely when her sister worked I don't like that Diane's brother's girlfriend also found a bag of Diane's things that just seems even more unlikely. Like, you know, the sister's manager finding the clothes was one thing, but this was a completely other thing. And, you know, I don't want to implicate the family or anyone in the family or connect to the family. It's like just friends. I don't want to in implicate anyone. Um, but there are just so many coincidences that it's really hard to believe that no one in the family is involved. Um, but yeah, next I want to talk about the fingertip. Why was left on the road? How was left on the road? Was this person dropping hints? There's a theory that no, this person wasn't dropping hints, but that actually Diane was forced into a car and had her finger slammed somehow. But this seems super unlikely to me. Like, you know, to cut her finger clean off by a car door so much so that it fell on the road. I don't know. That seems unlikely to me. In my opinion, I feel like, you know, whoever kidnapped her or possibly murdered her was playing mind games, you know, dropping clues, you know, like the clothing, her belongings. It just makes sense more than that. You know, maybe she was taken into a car. I mean, it, the voicemail does imply that she was, you know, being taken into a car or someplace, but I just, I don't know if that's related to the finger being on the side of the road. And now I also want to talk about how there are just so many clues and the mystery, it just still hasn't been solved. There's the voicemail, the finger, the clothes, the belongings, but no DNA evidence, nothing at all to convict someone. It's literally maddening. 
And in cases like this, I feel like there's usually so much evidence and it gets to the point where it's like, is is anything really being done? Like what was really done at that time? I know it was back in the day and they didn't have all the technology and the resources maybe that we do today. But still, I feel like there was just so much evidence like something could have been done. And also, I just kind of want to talk more about uh, the mental health of Diane, because I feel like that actually does play a huge part in her disappearance. I feel like because she was, first of all, she has bipolar disorder. Second of all, she was an addict. She was an alcoholic and she was reportedly drunk the last time, you know, some people had seen her. And so I feel like that probably played a huge part. I feel like anyone could have been watching her, could have been following her, seeing where she stayed, you know, seeing her behavior and just waiting for the right moment to jump. And they did. And she's just been gone. She's been missing for so long. And who knows if this will ever be solved. Like, I I don't know about you guys, but this case is definitely going to be one that's going to stay with me for a long, long, long time. I really hope it's solved. I forgot to mention earlier that this is a case that's pretty local. Like, I know all of these areas that they're talking about. You know, when I was doing all my research, I knew about all these areas. I knew where they were. US-19 is a place that, you know, I use often. And so I just feel like, I want if this is solved ever, I want to be one of the first people to know about it because it's just so crazy to me that it's gone unsolved for so, so long. But yeah, I think I'm going to end this episode here. Thank you guys so much for listening. And yeah, don't forget to tune in next week. I will be back next week with a new case. And I'm thinking I'm going to do a surprise for you guys in a few episodes. So yeah, just keep on tuning in. See you guys next time. Bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.